him. He said, I am the Lord, I change not. Thank God I don't have to serve a God whom, that I have to worry about his attitude each day. Is he in a good mood today or not? He changes not. He is consistent and can be counted on. Thank the Lord. If you have your Bible this evening, turn to the book of 1 John chapter 2. My portion of the service, I want to share some thoughts with you out of a text. It's on my heart. 1 John chapter 2, we'll read beginning in verse 12 in order to set the context and identify the, the group being addressed and then focus more particularly on a couple of verses further down. Let's begin in verse 12, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the world. Now, I, I read those verses because I wanted you to see specifically and clearly that the crowd being, us, being addressed are believers in Jesus. These are saved people, people who've been washed in the blood, who have a a relationship with the Father as children who, who have an anointing on them to overcome the devil and his wiles. Now verse 15 will be our text and verse 16 and 17. Love not the world. Is it necessary for Christians to hear that? Surely we ought to know that, right? And yet to this crowd, clearly saved people, re regenerate people, born again people. To that crowd, John felt compelled of the Holy Ghost to say, now let's get this settled. You must not love the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I want to speak to you this evening for a few moments on this enemy that dogs our step, the world, and the, the seduction of the love of the world, which is apparently such a real and present danger that even to people who are clearly and obviously born again, the man of God who wrote this passage said, now you've got to pay attention to this. This is an important issue that if you're careless with, it will be the ruin of your life. Love not the world. Are you aware tonight that the world is not your friend? It is not on your side. It is not going to help you to live a holy and godly life. It is not supportive. It is not friendly toward the things of God or the people of God. The world is a bitter rival for your affections. The world is a foe to your Lord, and it is a clever seductress. Scripture speaks of it as this present evil world in Galatians 1 and verse 4. A system of thought a priority of life that is so anti-Christ that our text makes the alarming statement that to love the world means I do not love the Father. We're talking about two things, the, the world and the Father, that are so mutually exclusive that I must love one or the other. I cannot love them both. I have to choose between them. James chapter 4 and verse 4, the Bible says, The friendship of the world is enmity with God. 
Whosoever then would be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So I have to choose. I do choose between them. Something has to give. I can't walk hand in hand with holy God and with this present evil world at the same time. In case you're wondering how this connects to the matter of revival, which is my personal burden and my great ministry concern, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus who were, they were doing so many things well, and yet in the midst of all of their religious success, there was this glaring issue. Jesus said, you've left your first love. Even really saved people can leave their first love. Paul had a ministry companion by the name of Demas of whom these tragic words have to be said. Paul said, Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world. The world is an enemy to the people of God. Now the world, of course, I'm sure you know this, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, the world does not speak, the term the world does not speak of the, the, the race of humanity. It's not that we ought not love people. We should love people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We're to love even our enemies according to the scriptures. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we're not talking about humanity. When the Bible speaks of the world, it's not talking about the race of humanity, nor is it speaking of the physical creation around us. The world in terms of the earth or God's created order, it's not that that the, the word world is in reference to. Rather, the idea of the world here is this prevailing, satanically engineered way of thinking and living that is in rebellion to the holiness of God. The book of Ephesians talks about the ways of the world and it speaks of it as a way of rebellion to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about the God of this world being the devil and that he blinds the minds of them that believe not to keep the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shining into their hearts. Satan is the seducer of the saints but the world is the seduction that he uses to draw us away from Christ. The world is the undying, uncompromising enemy of God and godliness. And it is perpetually pressuring the saints of God to leave our first love and backslide into a whorish love affair with carnality. So I'm going to expose the world from the passage before us this evening. All that is in the world, the Bible. Well, it's one thing for me to get up here tonight and say you ought not be worldly. Love not the world. But we need to be more particular. We need to understand what the world consists of. And so our text helps us with that. Verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Well, let's take a moment to consider these three elements that make up the world. These, this threefold ingredient to the rival of my first love. You're familiar with the great commandment I know Jesus was asked one day, which is the great commandment, the first and the great commandment. And his response was, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the great commandment tonight, that I love God exclusively and passionately and with every ounce of my life. But there's an enemy that seeks to keep me from doing that, that seeks to siphon off my love away from the God who deserves to be loved, away from the Father who sought me, the Savior who bought me, the Spirit who indwells me, there is an enemy. And we want to see specifically. Now when the Bible says all that is in the world and it then gives these ingredients, what it's telling us is here is everything that the devil is going to use to try to divert your attention away from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Everything Satan works to do and everything this demonically controlled world works to do can be classified in one of these three ways. First of all, the lust of the flesh. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh. The word lust is the chief Bible word associated with this present evil world. Lust is a word that occurs in Scripture again and again, and basically it can be defined like this. Lust is a wholesome desire that is run amok. God-given appetites that have mutated under the touch of sin and perverted into the idolatry of self-gratification. In Titus chapter 2, the Bible says that the whole point of the gospel, God's great saving grace, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. God's gospel has touched us so that we can look lust in the eye and say, you're not going to control my life. I'm not going to let my own desires, my fleshly appetites rule me. Now the will of God is going to rule me. My desire to walk with Jesus is going to rule me. That's the power of the gospel in a man's life. When most people read or hear this phrase, the lust of the flesh, immediately our minds go to the matter of sexual sin. You probably think that way. I think that way. When you hear the lust of the flesh, you may exclusively identify that with sexual sin. But the fact is, it's a lot broader than that. Now, it does include that, certainly. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, If a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery with her in his heart. So that certainly is a part of it. Sexual sin is a part of it, but it's bigger than that. The lust of the flesh literally embodies this idea. It is a matter of making the enjoyment of physical pleasure the highest pursuit in my life. The enjoyment of physical pleasure. Now, this is the source of all forms of self-indulgence. Gluttony and slothfulness as well as sexual sin it all finds its root in the lust of the flesh because the lust of the flesh cares only for what feels good at the moment. It is about momentary gratification. It comes down to serving sensuality, living for comfort and convenience, prioritizing the appetites of the physical self to the point that nothing means as much as immediate satisfaction of my desires. The lust of the flesh. The Bible speaks of a day when this is going to be rampant in the religious world. And frankly, I believe we're living in the middle of the fulfillment of this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Bible, uh, chapter 3 verse 1 says, In the last days perilous times shall come. We may look at this passage in more detail in one of my sessions later on in the conference. 2 Timothy 3, In the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of themselves. And it goes on later in the paragraph to say, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. That is, they haven't quit church. They're still in church. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They grieve away the power of God, which is based upon surrender and holiness. Though they're still religious, there's no power associated with their religion, which is what characterizes most of church in America today. Dead activity, powerless programs, no anointing, no life of God because you cannot live in the realm of serving pleasure and serving personal appetites more than the holiness of God. You can't live in that place and have the power of the Holy Ghost on you at the same time. 
So it's a dead religious age that is geared toward the satisfaction of personal desire. Now, folks, no sane person wants to be uncomfortable. No sane person intentionally seeks to be inconvenienced or pained, but for the born again, there's a higher priority than what feels good at the moment. Moses is the perfect example. Hebrews 11 says Moses, who was raised, as we heard this morning from Brother Jim, he was raised as Pharaoh's own grandson, grew up in the lap of luxury in the palace of Egypt, and yet a day came when Moses said, I would rather suffer reproach with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So he, he made a choice. A choice had a crossroad was reached. I can no longer continue to indulge my physical appetites. I have to choose now to embrace suffering. Suffering came to his life because of the choice he made, but the Bible says he endured as seeing him who is invisible, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Moses said there's a higher, there's a higher thing to live for than what feels good at the moment. There is an eternal God that one day I'm going to see face to face and he's going to reckon with me and I want to be ready for that day. So he had a higher priority than the lust of the flesh. Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem sent by the Holy Ghost. He said, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things which shall befall me there, save that in every city the Holy Ghost testifies that bonds and afflictions abide me. Are you following that? I know that's King James English, but you following what? He said, I know only one thing about my Jerusalem mission trip. The only thing I know for sure is that when I get there, I'm going to be bound and I'm going to suffer. Well, you'd say that's a good reason not to go, right? But Paul said, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I've received of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify the gospel of the grace of God. But none of these things move me. Life and liberty, freedom of, of, of movement, the convenience and comfort, Paul, that doesn't, that's the stuff that does move us. He said, that's not what I'm concerned. That's not what my life's about. My life's about doing what I've been called to do, being where I'm supposed to be, saying what I'm supposed to say, because the only thing that really matters is fulfilling the will of God in my life. One of the things the God of this world will use against you, in 2018 you'll find this battle fought in your life on a daily basis. One of the things the God of this world will use against you is the pressure to fit in with this world's priority of the pursuit of the lust of the flesh. You and I live in a culture that bombards us day after day, moment by moment, with the message that nothing is more important than your own pleasure. Whatever you enjoy, indulge, the, the, the entertainment industry has surrounded us with this message, and frankly, entertainment is God in many lives today. I mean, many Christian lives. The worldly person will sacrifice anything including an intimate walk with the holiness, the holy God. Uh, they'll sacrifice anything on the altar of their own enjoyment and their own amusement. 
Whatever's entertaining, whatever's enjoyable to them at the moment, that's the thing that means most. The lust of the flesh means living for personal pleasure. It means hungering and thirsting not to be right with God like Scripture says we should, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, but it's hungering and thirsting to satisfy an obsessive desire for recreation, for entertainment, for physical enjoyment. Now the Bible uses a provocative turn of phrase I hesitate to quote it because I'm a fat guy and it sounds like it's talking about fat guys. The book of Philippians chapter 3 talks about the enemies of the cross and it says whose God is their belly. Now what that simply means is God in that man's life is whatever feels good to him at the moment. The lust of the flesh. The second ingredient of the world is the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes has to do with living for the accumulation of material things. The phrase, the lust of the eyes, speaks of an insatiable desire for more and more possessions. One translation of the Bible renders it like this, our desire to have everything we see. The lust of the eyes, our desire to have everything we see. It is essentially the sin of covetousness. Very little said about that in, in our culture today. The sin of covetousness, always wanting more, never being content with what I have. A grasping, greedy attitude that focuses on indulging my desire for more toys and more gadgets and more baubles and beads. Always something else I've got to have to really be happy, I think. In America, we're particularly vulnerable to this attack because we're a nation driven by covetousness. And frankly, consumerism is almost equated with patriotism in our country today. It's so easy to fall prey to the devouring work of the devil as he pressures us to conform to the way of the world. And the way of the world in part is to always be reaching and grasping after the newest thing, feeling that I just can't be happy without one more whatever it is. We put ourselves in debt up to our eyeballs in order to keep stoking the insatiable fire of covetousness. We see some new thing and we want it and we convince ourselves that we have to have it in order to really be happy and so we do whatever it takes to get it and then the new wears off and the cycle repeats itself again and again and again until we die and face God and find out too late that we were idolaters. Because the Bible says in the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 5 says, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance. Now listen, you would say amen to the whoremonger. Maybe you'd say amen to the unclean, unclean person. But the next guy on the list Sounds a lot like John Q. American. Nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The words of Jesus go unheeded in the day we live in. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. We saw a bumper sticker where a family and I one time years ago said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And then I saw a Christian response bumper sticker later and said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And of course, that's the rub, isn't it? And then what? Now look, I don't believe, I do not believe the Bible teaches that you have to take a vow of poverty to be a godly Christian. 
But I do believe that you have to refuse to be controlled by the lust of the eyes if you're going to walk in the love of the Father. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says that, we, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And listen to this verse. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. Who in the world do you know who is content if they've got a meal to eat and clothes on their back? Well, it takes a lot more than that, right? To content us, to give us any sense of satisfaction in this life. But that's what the Bible says. Having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. For they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with me. Listen, folk, erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The person who's controlled by the love of the Father will be identified by their contentment, by a supernatural detachment from material things, and the fact uh, that their joy comes from the opportunity to give to the glory of God rather than get and keep unto themselves. That's the love of the Father. It's a crazy kind of thing you read about in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 2 and chapter 4, when those first Christians got saved and all of a sudden they just turned loose of everything. They didn't regard anything that they had as their own. They saw everything in their control as, the, as, as available to the Father to use any way he wanted to. They just gave away hand over fist. Zacchaeus the whirling, Zacchaeus the, the thug was identified as a, by a, by a spirit of accumulation at all costs. He was the chief of the publicans and he was very rich, Luke 19 says. And that means he made his living taking advantage of people, abusing their gullibility, overcharging their taxes, and, and, and he was good at what he did. He made a good living at it. He was a wealthy man. He'd stepped on a lot of people to get where he was and laughed, I'm sure, all along the way. That's the kind of man he was. And then Christ came into his life. And you know the first thing that guy did, the first thing that happened, he said, I'm giving away half of everything I've got to the poor, and if I've wronged any of you, I'm going to pay you back four times what I took from you. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Now, you think Jesus didn't know he got saved? He came down out of that tree. When Jesus stopped by his tree, he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. I'm going to your house today. And the Bible says Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And if that had been a Baptist meeting, we'd have voted on him on the spot and said, we confirm this guy is saved. Welcome to the family. Jesus didn't say a word. They started walking down the street. Zacchaeus heard all the muttering and the murmuring from the people he'd stepped on to get his fortune. And he stopped the procession and said, let me just say this. I'm giving away half of everything I've got right now to the poor. And all of you that I took unfair advantage of, I'm going to pay you back four times what I took from you. And Jesus said, today is salvation come to. This is what it looks like when a man gets saved. He falls out of love with the world and in love with the Father. The lust of the eyes no longer dominate him. There's, so, there's a higher priority on his agenda now than how to get more and hold on to it at any cost. The love of the world is first of all about the lust of the flesh. 
what feels good to me, what in, indulges and satisfies my desires and my personal appetites. It's about the, the lust of the eyes. It's getting and grabbing and accumulating and wanting more and more and never being content with what I have, always seeing some new thing that I've just got to get in order to be happy. The lust of the eyes and then the pride of life is the final piece of the puzzle. The pride of life basically comes down to a love of reputation a desire to be held in high regard. It's a craving for popularity with men. Pride means arrogance, the word pride. Arrogance, in fact, the root of the word has the idea of boasting. One commentator on the book of 1 John said that the idea of the pride of life speaks of an attitude of braggadocio which exaggerates what it possesses in order to impress other people. It's a consuming desire to be thought highly of, to be to be looked up to and admired for who I am or what I've accomplished or what I've accumulated. And it could even be in the world of religion. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees who were the best of the best, it seemed, in the New Testament age, ridiculously religious men. But Jesus exposed their hearts when he said, they love, they love to be called rabbi. They love to be greeted with high-sounding titles out in the street. They love the feeling of respect that comes. They pray long prayers out where everybody can hear them so that everyone will be impressed with how spiritual they are. They do what they do, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 5. They do whatever they do to be seen of men. And the word literally means to put on a show like a theater, like a performer on stage. They're always on stage in their mind. They, they want to create a certain impression. This consuming desire to be looked up to, to be held in high regard, the pride of life, based on outward things, outward external appearances, material status symbols, cars and houses and clothes and so forth, the pride of life. The devil wants us to conform to the world's way of emphasizing material things above eternal and spiritual things. But the Bible warns us of it. In Jeremiah chapter 9, the Bible says, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise man gloat in his wisdom or the mighty man, uh, let not the wise man gloat in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might or the rich man in his riches. Let them boast in this alone that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who is just and righteous. See, the only thing really worthy of boast is the one thing you really can't show anybody. It's down inside of you in the secret you. And it's the depth of your walk with God. It's the depth of your intimate knowledge of Him. One of the ways that this form of worldliness manifests is in the, is in the desire to be well thought of by men to such a point that it overwhelms your desire, your concern to be right with God. John chapter 12 tells us about a group of men who believed on Jesus, but they did not confess Him lest they be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Imagine that. Well, I don't have to imagine it. I've been there myself before. Have you ever been in a place where you know full well God was telling you to do a thing? You knew He was telling you to do it. The Spirit of the Lord was speaking to you so particularly about maybe giving a tes testimony to a lost co-worker or family member or maybe standing in a service like this and bearing testimony outwardly and publicly or whatever the case may be in my own life. I went through a great battle around the issue of lifting my hands in praise in church. As I was saved in a Methodist church. I didn't grow up Baptist. 
And I don't know if all Methodist churches are like this, but the little Methodist church I grew up in, brother, you never heard a grunt for Jesus in the church. Nobody said amen. Nobody said glory to God. Nobody lifted their hands and worshiped the Lord. And the first Baptist church that I got involved in was about the far, far the other ways you could go. Man, they'd have, the, they'd have shouting spells break out and people marching around the building and lifting their hands. And here I was, 16, 17 years old, all of a sudden right in the middle of something I had no, no frame of reference for. And I, I began to see in the Bible where the Scriptures told me to lift up my hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of trust. Those things are in the Bible. And there I was having to deal with some stuff that was clearly biblical but was highly uncomfortable for me. The Spirit of God be speaking to my heart about lifting my hands in praise and I just lock them down. <laughs> thinking, well, what are they going to think of me? They think I'm just doing it because other people are doing it. They, they think I'm just showing out. And I'll tell you, the, the point has to be reached in every Christian life where you say, I don't care what anybody thinks, but my father, his opinion is the only one that matters. The Bible says of that crowd in John 12, they love the praise of men rather than the praise of God. And according to the book of Proverbs, the, the, the fear of man is a snare, brother. It's a bondage that locks you down and keeps you from ever getting free in Christ. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Paul said in Galatians 1 and verse 10, he said, Do I yet please men? For if I pleased men, I would not be the servant of Christ. The idea being I can choose one or the other, but I can't do them both. I can either be concerned with pleasing you or I can serve Jesus. I have to choose between those options. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, if the love of a father controls me, then I'm willing to bear the cross and pay the price to walk with God because most of all I want him to be pleased with my life and to think well of me. If the love of the world controls me, then that's just too fanatical for my tastes. I'm not willing to run the risk of looking foolish or being embarrassed for the sake of the gospel. And I'm not willing to sacrifice my image or my reputation to be all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's all the world consists in. That's all the world has to offer. Live for yourself. Live for the moment. Live for material goods. Live for the adoration of those around you. It's all about you. It's all about you. That's the world. And, and here's the deal. The Bible says in verse 17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The wise man asked the question, Where is this road leading me? It's not just a matter of the road I'm on right now, but where's this taking me? Where's this going to cause me to end up? Jesus spoke of a, a broad way that leads to destruction. It's wide, it's accommodating. Anything basically will fit on it. You don't have to die to anything or sacrifice anything to walk on the broad way. Any old dog will hunt. Everything fits there. It's comfortable, it's accommodating. The only problem is the end is destruction. He said there's another, there's another way. You have to go through a straight gate and it's narrow and it's confined and there's a lot of stuff that won't fit on it. If you're going to get on that road, you're going to have to get rid of a lot of junk. There's not room for a lot of nonsense to walk on that road. 
Well, I don't know. Should, should anybody want to walk on a road like that that's going to require death to self and denial of, of, of a lot of my own ideas and ways and will? Would anybody want to walk on that road? Well, before you decide one way or the other, let me tell you, the, that road ends up in everlasting life. See, our text says the love of the world and the things of the world, they're all going to nothingness. They're passing away. But man, when you fall in love with a father and you go God's way, instead of living for self-indulgence, you live for the glory of God. Instead of living for the accumulation of things, you live under the stewardship of the gospel. Instead of living for the pride of life, you die to your reputation and care only for the good pleasure of the Lord Jesus. Man, when you live like that, the Bible says, that kind of life endures forever. Endures forever. And the wise man says, I want to invest myself in something that's going to last a little longer than the few years I'm walking on the top side of this planet. Great verse of Scripture. Galatians chapter 6 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. He that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, I want to make this statement plainly as I finish tonight. No man can serve two masters. That's a quote from the Lord Jesus. No man can serve two masters. You cannot love the world and love the Father at the same time. You cannot allow the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life or any combination of those to have control of you and Christ be in control of you simultaneously. It is not a both and. It is an either or. And my call to you this evening and my challenge to my own heart is to make sure that my eyes are on eternity, that I'm living in light of ultimate reality and not allowing the momentary to blind me to that which is eternally important. I think that this passage of Scripture, though written generations ago to another age of Christians, could be written, could have been written this morning to the American Christian community. I don't know of anything in the Bible that needs to be heard more in our day than the danger of the love of the world. The more time I spend in social media, the more I'm convinced that there are a lot of people who would say they love Jesus, but the God's honest truth is they love the world. May the Lord help us to get our priorities right. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that exposes our enemy. We don't have to be taken advantage of by the devil. We're not ignorant of his devices. You've told us plainly what he's up to and what avenues he's going to use to attack us. God, help us, each one in our own hearts, to fall in love with the Father fully, radically, passionately,